So in the last couple of episodes, you heard all about scaling laws or power laws and how they apply to mammals. Well, in this episode, which is the final part of our discussion for the moment on scaling and complex systems, you're joined again by Jeffrey West, distinguished Shannon professor and former president of the Santa Fe Institute. And in this episode, we're going to leave mammals behind and we're going to go and look at other complex systems. Because in this episode, Jeffrey's going to talk about how scaling laws apply to cities or companies. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Welcome back, Jeffrey, on this massive discussion we're having on scaling and complexity. So, We've done two episodes. In the first episode, we spent a lot of time talking about mammals and how many aspects of mammals scale and scale in predictable ways. We can double the size of a mammal and we also increase the metabolism, but we don't double it. We only increase it by an extra 75%. We talked in part two particularly about why this happens. Why does this sort of universality to what makes us mammals, even though we all seem really different to one another, us and whales and shrews. And we talked about the fourth dimension, the way that these scaling laws really come from the fact that we've got this fourth dimension because we're fractal-like and we have self-similarity, like cutting the branch off the tree the way you discussed. And that gives us this economic scale. As we get bigger as mammals, we require less energy given our size to move around. So we're more efficient. And we see We spoke a lot about how many heartbeats we have and how our heart rate changes and why we age and why we die and why humans now live for around 100 years. Now, this episode, we're going to talk how these scaling laws don't just apply to animals. And we're going to talk specifically about cities and companies in this, our final episode on scaling. You want to go back to the animals and you want to go back to the doubling of our lifespan, but that's a really nice segue into cities. Isn't that right? Yes, thank you, Sean. As you've said, you've emphasized these scaling laws permeate across all of life, all of biological life. It started out thinking about mammals, but it covers every form of life that we're familiar with, from the microscopic all the way up to even ecological systems. One of the more intriguing aspects is that it predicts life history events, such as time to maturity, but also very pertinently let's talk about mammals for the moment, how long a mammal should live. And uh, indeed, the data supports the predictions of the theory. I'll give you an example. My father was born in 1914, and I looked up the life expectation of a male born in the United Kingdom in 1914, and it was 60. And in fact, that's when he died, sadly. Now that number's 80. But if you looked at his grandfather, it would have been more like closer to 45 to 50. And now, if I lived in the United Kingdom, but I live in America, the expectation for my grandson, grandson's greater than 80. So it's doubled effectively from our, quote, natural lifespan. Why is that? Well, I said it before, a large part of that was due to hygiene and the installation of sewers and garbage collecting and running water and all the various things we take completely for granted now. 
But of course, that is the segue to city because that could not have happened without human beings coming together in a collective that working together, we could do more than working individually. And the city is in many ways could be considered maybe the most marvelous machine we've invented or maybe evolved is maybe a better word because of that process happening, of course, through social networking and so on, it's led to the extraordinary increase in quality of standard of living that we have. Of course, they've also brought along with it a lot of bad things because cities are where most of the poverty is, where most of the crime is, where most of the disease is, and so on. The important point to recognize is that the attractiveness of cities, the increasing opportunities that cities present themselves have attracted people, and so they keep growing, and so much so that now over half the planet lives in cities, and in all developed countries, more than 80% of the people live in cities. And so the future of the planet, the very questions of sustainability of the planet, are truly bound up with understanding cities. So even though I made that segue from lifespan, as saying why it's interesting to think about cities, they're at the very core of the future of the planet. And so I think it's really important to develop a kind of science of cities in the way I've talked about biology and begin asking the very same question that started our conversation and started my work in this area, and that is, do cities scale? Listeners may be wondering why we're talking about cities in complex systems podcasts. And, and I mean, I think it intuitively makes sense, but you've got a lovely quote in your book called Scale. Yeah. And you say, cities are emergent, complex, adaptive social network systems resulting from the continuous interactions among their inhabitants, enhanced and facilitated by the feedback mechanisms provided by urban life. I think that's just fabulous, fabulous oh, quote. That's good. <laughs> that's not... So we're going to dig into this and we're going to dig into how cities work from a scaling perspective. And we're going to hear all about power laws again. And we're going to hear some magic numbers like the number four, probably be the number four, but it'll be a number that tells us a lot about how cities work. So probably the best place to start is go back to, I think probably the most intuitive place I find to start with cities is there's a relationship, isn't there, between the sizes of a certain city and how many of those cities we have. So cities scale, essentially, don't they? Yes. So there's a law that was known for a very long time. It's called Zipf's Law, which does tell you that there's a regular distribution, statistical distribution of the number of cities of a given size. You could rank cities by their size and you could bin them. You would bin cities that have a population between 2 million and 2.2 million and so on, or between 100,000 and 105,000. And if you do that, you can rank those bins. And what was discovered or approximately that there's, of course, one leading city, and then the next bin, there are two, two in that bin, the next rank, and then there's three in the third one, and so on. So it's kind of completely simple. It's an incredibly simple law. It's called Zip's Law. But what was not known was when, until we started getting involved and thinking of cities in the same way that I talked about organisms, and simply looking at their characteristics, their quantitative characteristics, such as 
What is the length of all their roads? How many gasoline petrol stations do they have? What are the length of all the electrical lines? What's the volume of all the buildings? And just plotting it versus size. And we did that, at least my young colleagues did it. And we discovered that there were scaling laws that mimicked biology, the ones we talked about earlier. And that is that they scaled non-linearly. And if you plotted cities logarithmically, that is going up by factors of 10 from the smallest towns, if you like, of less than 50,000 all the way up. Let's just take the United States, which I know best, all the way up to New York City, which is a metropolitan area of 15 million people. Again, you have to plot them logarithmically. And if you did that, for all these metrics, they all scaled. And in fact, all those ones I just told you about, the infrastructural ones, where the length of all the roads, number of gasoline stations, and so on, they scaled in the same way. They all scaled with a slope, not of 0.75, but something close to 0.85. And so what that says in the language I used before, if you double the size of an organism, you sort of save 25%. For cities, you systematically save 15%. And again, it doesn't matter if you go from 100,000 to 200,000 or a million to 2 million. doesn't matter. If you're a listener, you probably need just a second to digest what has been said there, which is that we can draw a graph. And once we plot it on a log scale, it's a straight line. And that straight line has a slope of 0.85. And if we pick any city in the US and we then double the size of it and go find that city and we count the number of petrol stations or the length of road in that city, we don't get double the number of petrol stations. We get 85% more roads. So what we're seeing here in cities is the same economics of scale. It's just a different slope. In the organism, we save ourselves 25%, but in the city, we only save ourselves 15%. Correct. You've said it perfectly. So that was very interesting and surprising. What was really surprising was not only was it true of all infrastructural metrics that we could lay our hands on, but we learned that it was true across urban systems across the globe. But it was true in Argentina. It was true in France. It was true in Germany. It was true in Chile, and so on. So everywhere we got data, it was the same, and it didn't matter what metric you measured. And that was very intriguing and very exciting. But what really got us excited, and which really surprised me when we first did it, is when we looked at socioeconomic metrics, which is really what a city is about. I mean, the infrastructure is talking about the stage set, so to speak. And that stage set is to support social networks, social systems, and socioeconomic activity. And so when we measure those, and what are those metrics? Things like wages, might be disease, might be crime, it might be patents, patents as a proxy for the innovation of a city. And we got the data on those and plotted those. Again, logarithmically, we found very satisfactorily for us that they, again, plotted logarithmically. They were straight lines. But we saw something new, something we hadn't seen before. That is, instead of numbers like 0.75 and 0.85, sublinear, what we call sublinear, for socioeconomic quantities like patents and crime and disease, they were superlinear. It was roughly 1.15. So instead of the bigger you are, the less per capita, the less energy you need per capita, for socioeconomic quantities, 
the bigger you are, the more you have per capita. That is, the higher the wages per capita, the bigger the city. The more patents produced, the more ideas produced, the more schools there are per capita, the more, in general, educational institutions. But also, as I always say, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the more disease per capita, the more crime per capita, and so on. So that was fascinating, and it was fascinating because it was the same exponent, meaning the same slope of the graph, and it was the same extraordinarily across the globe. And the question again arose, where in the hell do these things come from? Again, just to reinforce that, go back to the mammals, huge diversity in the mammal kingdom, but an underlying set of scaling laws that allows us to predict so many key things about those organisms. You're saying as you find the same with cities, cities are almost like living things. And it doesn't matter about all the cultural differences we have across the world with the way we think we want to live our lives compared to how other cultures want to live their lives. We fundamentally end up with cities that are scaled, self-similar versions of one another. Yes, exactly. These laws are not sort of like Newton's laws. and so They're not exact. And this is very much a characteristic of complex systems and complex adaptive systems because they're continually evolving and so on. So when you draw that line, when I said you plot them on a graph and you see a straight line, of course, the points are scattered around the straight line. So if you wanted to know how many police, you give me the size of a city in the United States, I can tell you the length of all the roads, the length of electrical lines, the number of patents it produces, the number of police it has, how many AIDS cases there were, how much crime was committed, how many murders were committed, all to within 80-90%. There's almost a deterministic aspect to the city, despite, as you said, the different histories, the different cultures, the different geographies of each city. There is an individuality to us, obviously. Cities look different. And that difference in terms of the way we've been talking is when you make that plot, doesn't lie exactly on the straight line. It may overperform in terms of might have less crime, but quote, it should. It might be producing more patents than it should by a small amount. To this 80-90% level, we get it right. And that's what the scaling law says, colloquial sense. So, Jeffrey, do we know where these scaling laws come from? When we talked about the mammals, we know we have all the same cells, we have all the same size capillaries, and then it's a network problem after that where all the mathematics drop out because that network has to be efficient and reach everywhere. And we've got these two laws that really drop out of the cities, the point eight five with respect to the infrastructure and the roads and the length of the electrical lines and all that. And then we've got the 1.15, which is the patents and the good things and the bad things like the crime. Is there theories on where these two numbers come from? Yes, absolutely. And the paradigm is pretty much taking from the template of biology I described, namely These scaling laws are a manifestation, again, of the underlying networks of which a city is a manifestation. And it's more complicated for a city because a city contains two kinds of networks. It contains infrastructural networks, namely, which are biological, like your circulatory system. They're roads and electrical lines and gas lines and so forth, general transportation networks and so on. More importantly, what a city is, is a bunch of social networks. I mean, the city is there because we are all interconnected with each other, whether that's in our homes, with our families, 
whether it's in our jobs, in our groups, our divisions, and so on. And so the idea is it is the social networks integrated and in tension with the infrastructural networks. Now, I want to say one word about those social networks, which is very different than all the networks we've discussed, because the fascinating thing about social networks is that when you bring people together, and that's the whole point of a city, is to bring people together and facilitate social interaction. A talks to B, B talks to C, C talks back to A, and you build on each other. And you are continually creating ideas. And that's what a city is. It is that machine to facilitate that process. And the difficulty in putting this into mathematics, it has to be in dynamic integration with the social networks. Because even though you have this image of people interacting and so forth, you have to be someplace. You have to be in your home. You have to be in your kitchen. You have to be in the bathroom. You have to be in your office. You have to be someplace which ties you to the infrastructural network. Not only that, you have to be moving. You have to go to the office. You have to take the kids to school. You have to go get food from the store. So these two networks are intimately integrated and intertwined. And this is no accident that the 0.85 is 0.15 less than one, and the 1.15 is 0.15 bigger than one. It actually comes about because those two have to be integrated. Now, this work, even though we have this framework, this mathematical framework, is not as well developed as the biological. And still, I have to say, a work in progress to really understand this as deeply as we do the biology. But conceptually and fundamentally, the origin of these scaling laws is, again, due to network, geometry, topology, and dynamics. Which brings us to a fascinating question which you cover in your book, which is we mammals die, but cities rarely die. Talk to us about that, Jeffrey. Yes, this is a fascinating question because this positive feedback and continuous renewal that is effectively going on in cities and the fact that it encourages what we call emergent behavior. It's not top-down. The idea is to facilitate, not to control and direct. And that distinguishes it, by the way, from a company, which is top-down typically and is controlling and directing. City is to allow things to emerge and evolve and a great city, first of all, has not just formal places to encourage this, like theaters and lecture halls and office buildings and universities, but it also has many informal places, parks and squares and coffee houses. And it allows diversity and encourage, a great cities encourage, in fact, diversity. I don't mean ethnic or racial diversity, but I mean just diversity of ideas, diversity of jobs. And a great city should have the feeling that I can do X. If I want to start this little business, great. Can't do that in a company. Very hard to do that in a company. There's varying degrees of that, but companies are highly controlled. So cities are in this process of continually innovating and renewing, and therefore do not die in the way that either people and companies die. Just to give you a statistic to cap this off, 
what we call the half-life of a company. If you take a cohort of companies and you ask, even after they posted on the stock market, on the stock exchange, and have gone public, in the United States, the half-life, how long does it take for half of them to disappear is about 10 years, which is pretty amazing, actually. But a city, you can drop atom bombs on cities, which we've done. And even 25 years later, they're beginning to flourish. And 50 years later, they're truly flourishing. We've done the horrible experiment. And cities, after the Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, people said, oh my God, New Orleans is finished. Well, it's back up and running. You know, I mean, it's very hard to kill a city, but a little fluctuation of the stock market, of the externalities, and you lose the TWA, you lose, you know, and so on. Companies are incredibly fragile. Cities are extraordinarily resilient. When you look at companies, and we don't really have enough time to get into them, they don't have the 1.15. Isn't that the key? They don't have a melting pot. No. So that's what's so fascinating. If you look at the scaling of companies, meaning you look at the profits, for example, the characteristics of companies, how they scale with their size, the size could be number of employees, it could be their total assets, they scale sublinearly. They scale like biology. So companies grow quickly and then stop, which they do. And then like life, like organisms, they die. And one can make a similar metaphor comparing them to organisms. And we've done quite a bit of work. And that's very much a work in progress that we have a series of papers coming out on that. But cities which have this superlinear behavior, this open-ending behavior, they have open-ended growth and they keep growing, which has its own problems, by the way, that you have to keep reinventing yourself if you want to stay alive as a city. You have to keep making paradigm shifts and so on. Otherwise, you too will collapse. Which, of course, is possible, isn't it, because of the diversity? And it's the companies, as they grow, they sort of become less diverse almost, and they become more similar to themselves. One of the things that's extraordinary about cities is that actually, as they grow, they expand their dimensionality, their diversity. We've papers on this and uh, looking at the statistics, their diversity of jobs and employment and businesses continuously expands. Now, that's in marked contrast. The market forces start limiting what is important because obviously you have to respond to what sells and what the market supports. So the typical trajectory of a company is it might start with a wider dimensionality, but very quickly it narrows. And then it begins to ossify because it has to have a bureaucracy, an administration, someone has to make sure the taxes are paid, the laws are obeyed, and it tends to strangle its innovation, which is a typical story of a company. And eventually, as it grows, because of that ossification, it becomes harder and harder and more and more challenging to respond to market forces. And that's been the story of almost all companies. And even though some seem invincible, it's hard to believe that there won't be a Google in 50 years. Well, maybe there will be. Some companies do survive. But some of the biggest companies that look invincible, especially when I think of my youth, have disappeared completely. People don't even remember their names. And on that thought, if you're listening to this and you've really enjoyed everything you've heard, like I have, Jeffrey, thank you very much. Your book is called Scale. Go out and grab Jeffrey's book and read it. It's an incredible journey through the animal kingdom, cities and companies. 
Jeffrey, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Sean, for having me, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.